take your Bibles this morning and look at them for a moment. Don't look in them yet. Just look at your Bible. Take it in your hand and ask this question. Where did the Word of God come from? We'll return to this very practical question next week as we try to summarize chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. But this really screams at us in our text this morning at the end of chapter 14. What do we understand the Word of God to be? And how has it come to us? Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The 14th chapter, the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And here we find the Apostle Paul saying something dramatic. He says, the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. The things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. That's an audacious statement. I think if we would think about it, if I stood here and I said to you this morning, God has spoken to me and this is precisely what he says and you must do it, it would make most of us a little bit nervous. But Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is bold enough, he is audacious enough as he writes to the troubled church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, he says, the things I am writing are a command from God, from the Lord. This is much like the prophets in the Old Testament. Remember their common introduction was, this is what the Lord says. The old King James was, thus saith the Lord, speaking for God. And this is where the Word of God comes from. And so we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And for our text this morning, let's begin down in verse 36. We're going to begin in our sermon back up in verse 26. But just as an initial reading, look with me in verse number 36, and let me read down to the end of the chapter, and let me remind you this morning, as I do every week nearly, this is God's word for us today. This is God's word for us today. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 36. The word says this, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it is reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. In our church, we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians, trying to see what God's Word has for us as it had for those Corinthians who were struggling with being the body of Christ. We are called as a church family to represent Christ in the world. And the Corinthians were falling far short, weren't they? And sometimes we do also. Driven by pride, yielding to sin, too often in rebellion against God's word, watch this, against God's authority. That's not just a Corinthian problem, is it? It's likely a problem that you and I struggled with this very week, if not this morning already. Can anybody say amen? Those of you who 
said it for your spouses. I think that's probably what was going on there. In Corinth, all of this kind of rebellion and this self-will, all of it was showing up in public worship. If you've been with us for the last few months, you remember back in chapter 11, there were all of these strange things that were happening when they would gather for communion. The rich people would bring their own food. It was like a potluck, and, and the poor people didn't have anything to eat, and some of the rich people evidently were getting close to being drunken. And it was at a moment in which the church was to demonstrate its unity together as the body of Christ. The Corinthians were splintering and demonstrating division and factions. It was chaotic. And that chaos also was showing up evidently in the way that they were gathering for worship, especially in how they were using what we've called the grace gifts, the charismata, the, the, the gifts of grace, what we sometimes call spiritual gifts. Those grace gifts, they were being practiced in the church in ways that instead of being orderly and instead of being edifying, they were being practiced in ways that were chaotic, as we'll see, if not in anarchy. And so the Word of God addresses this. Now, if that's far removed from where you are in life this morning, if you'll just hold on, I think I'll be able to show you how the principles apply to us even though hopefully our worship services are not chaotic, hopefully our worship services are reflective of what we find in this chapter, we should not in pride ignore these principles. And so as we work through this passage, let me remind you what Paul has been doing. Back in what we call chapter 12, he basically said that each and every member of Christ's body has been given at least one grace gift, that everyone is equipped each member has been given grace gifts. But there was a problem. There was a warning. And that's chapter 13, remember? Chapter 13 said, make sure that as you use your grace gifts, you use those gifts in and motivated by love for one another. So chapter 13 clarified that there should be love for one another. This should be the crucial motivation that the use of gifts must be rooted in love. And then beginning last week, we began chapter 14 where then Paul finally reaches a place where he's going to speak to this chaos. And in chapter 14, he explains that this is what it looks like in public worship, to use your grace gifts in ways that are motivated by love, not by selfishness. So that you, as you interact with one another, especially in public worship, you do so in a way that has an appropriate concern for the glory of God and for the good of those around you. And so this morning we complete chapter 14 and we'll look at some of these commands, some of these guidelines, and we'll draw principles that apply for our lives as well. Because make no mistake, chapter 13 is not an addition. The love chapter, the command that love is more important than any of these things, it is the core of Paul's rebuke to the Corinth church, and it's the core of the Holy Spirit's message for you and for me as we think about what it means to be the body of Christ. We are to live in love. There was a priority of love. We have love for God, and especially we have love then for one another, and especially the love for all people and love for our neighbors that is uniquely and particularly true of our relationships in what we call the body of Christ or the church. And so God is love. We should care for one another. But we'll find in our text this morning another characteristic of God's nature. In fact, you can look at it with me. In verse 33, 
the beginning of the verse, it says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of, what does it say? Peace. God is a God of peace. So God is not only love, but God is also a God of peace. And that peace contrasted with the confusion that if we were going to take our time to dive into Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the confusion that came from the fall and from rebellion, and the confusion that sometimes reigns in our own hearts and reigns sometimes in our homes and tragically sometimes reigns in our churches when we do not love one another well, when we don't focus on the God of peace, confusion. The church should model this kind of peace, not confusion. When we come together as a body, as the body of Christ, and also in our relationships with one another. So I guess a, a great question of application as we begin our message this morning is, is your life characterized by peace or is it characterized by confusion? And if the characteristic of your life is emotional, spiritual confusion, relational confusion, then likely we need to do a heart check. And this passage helps us do so. What I think we'll find in our text this morning is a, a checklist for worship. Uh, it, it's a way to test your church. This is somewhat bold for a pastor to do this, but it's in the text here. It's in the Word. That This is how church services, particularly how church services should function. And this entire chapter, the letter of Paul that's divided into chapters, as we look at chapter 14, it begins and it ends with this reminder that prophecies which we're going to relate to essentially the Word of God, that prophecies are what should matter. Look at it with me. Look in verse 1. Pursue love. That's coming off of chapter 13. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then you look down at the end of the chapter in verse 39. This is what's called an inclusio. It's like a bookend. You have the bookend at the front and the bookend at the end. So look at verse 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So the emphasis is on prophecy, which is the word of God proclaimed, the word of God revealed. That's the emphasis. And as we saw last week, when we come together in church, just to summarize last week, prophecy was to be valued over tongues and communication, that is communication of truth, was to be valued over experience. And why is that? Because coming together as the body of Christ, the ultimate goal is that we would be built up. That one another would be encouraged and edified is the term. That we would be exhorted, that we would be instructed. This building up. And so the first item on your worship service checklist this morning is to ask this question. Is edification prioritized? If you're going to evaluate any church, and there may be some here this morning that are evaluating what church should I be a part of, here's a checklist for you. The first question to ask is, is edification prioritized? Because clearly in Scripture, that's what the Word of God tells us to expect, that we should be built up as a result of our coming together as the body of Christ. So look at what Paul says beginning in verse 26, which will begin our text this morning. Look at it with me. It says there, what then, brothers? And then he references five different components that evidently were happening when the Corinthians were coming together. When you come together, each one has a hymn, 
a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, once again, this is hyperbolic. We don't have to believe that every single person that came to every single gathering of the Corinth church had every single one of these. His point is, there was a lot going on in Corinth worship services. And look at what he says. Let all things be done for building up. That's edification. Let all things be done for building up. We have to ask ourselves, what is a church's identity? What is a church's self-identity? Why does a church believe that they exist? More specifically, what does a church gather for? We have just come in American evangelicalism, and I think this has probably been exported, unfortunately, to other parts of the world. We've come through a long, basically a generation or more of churches that were given over to the philosophy that everything that we do, we have to make accessible and comfortable for unbelievers. And so the worship service is designed for the seeker. And so many churches took the cross down from their sanctuary and they stopped singing hymns that were written older than three months ago. And they, and they instead of preaching and expositing the word, the messages kind of sounded like TED Talks, if you know what a TED Talk is. And it was just kind of a, 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 it was a desire for an experience that would kind of be inspiring and would pump you up for another week as opposed to the faithful and consistent teaching of the Word of God that builds up believers, that builds up one another. And let me show you how this works. Even to the extent where if your pastor preaches a message and you listen to the whole message and you say, I'm not sure how that applies to me. Some of us preach more sermons than that than we should. But anyway, let's say you say that. Your concern in prayer should be, I pray that it built someone else up. The assumption should be, I'm not quite sure how to apply everything I heard this morning, but I pray that the Holy Spirit applies it in someone's heart. That's what the gathering of the church is about, as opposed to being designed for unbelievers or designed for those. And it's not that we should put obstacles in the way of unbelievers. And maybe you're here and you're still not a believer in Jesus. We're delighted that you're here. We're not saying there's no place for you here. But what we're doing here is not primarily designed for you. Because the gathering of the church is for edification, to be built up, to be strengthened. We see this back earlier in the chapter, if you glance at verse 3 of chapter 14. Paul's arguing there about the primacy of prophecy, and he says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, there it is, and encouragement, and also consolation or comfort. So that's the design of worship services in a church. And the goal of this is, is often, there's just no other way we can say this, it's often laden with teaching or truth or doctrine. You, you can't escape that. That's what builds up through the working of the Holy Spirit. Because we need not so much our, stay with me for a moment, not so much our emotions renewed, we need our minds renewed. Because when our minds are renewed, then our emotions follow. And therefore, that's the reason the Bible says a familiar verse. We saw it last week. We'll repeat it this week. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Why does Paul say that? Because it's so easy for us to become conformed to this world, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And how are we transformed? We are transformed by the renewal of our minds. We need our minds 
refreshed. We need to hit reset on a consistent daily basis. And particularly as the church, we do so on Sunday mornings as we come together to have our minds renewed. Listen very carefully. I'm going to make a bold statement. A healthy church must be a teaching church. A healthy church must be a teaching church. Is edification prioritized? Here's number two on your checklist. Is order maintained? That clearly, evidently, was the issue in Corinth, especially as they were trying to exercise and use these grace gifts that the Holy Spirit had given them. Is order maintained? Look at verse 27. We'll make some comments as we read through. Follow along, please. Verse 27 says, If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Can I stop right there? The assumption of all of these verses is that even though these are grace gifts, they are still under the control of the person. There's a sense of self-control. Let me take one step further. There's also a sense of self-restraint. There's nothing in any of this text which implies that when you are moved by your grace gift, when the Holy Spirit is moving, utilizing the gift of grace, that you are out of control. That you just can't stop it. The, tr- the opposite is true. If your grace gift is really working, there should be an appropriate fullness of the Spirit. And part of the fruit of the Spirit, if you're full of the Spirit, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And so we're not talking here about some kind of ecstatic, out-of-control chaos. The assumption that Paul's writing, the assumption of his words is that you can control your spiritual gift. It's the only way to say it. Keep going. Verse 28. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. In other words, those who were desiring to speak in tongues. Let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Now, the assumption when we read that just on the surface is speak to himself and to God in tongues. But I would dispute that. I would just suggest to you that if you go back and you look at verses 14 and 15, the point of speaking to God is we should pray with our minds. Not not in some kind of unknown tongue, but rather we should pray with understanding. We should pray in our spirit, but also with our minds. So that seems to be in view there. But now look, the same principle about chaos and order, the same principle is applied to prophecy in verse 29. So look at it there. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Now why? There are two possible answers. There are probably many possible answers. But let me give you the two main answers. Why, if prophets get up in the worship service in Corinth and speak, revealing God's word, why was it important for those statements to be judged? Well, there's two possibilities. The first possibility, which is very common for people to say today, is that prophecy in the New Testament is flawed and fallible. And so it may be prophecy is a spiritual gift, but it might have bad stuff in it, and so it has to be evaluated. That's a very popular position, and many people hold that position today. Good people, many believers hold that position. I think, though, that that misses the point. It misses the point, first of all, that prophets, especially in the time of Paul, if prophets spoke, they spoke from the Holy Spirit, in a context that you and I would call Old Testament, and when prophets spoke, they spoke perfectly. In fact, if you go and look at the Old Testament, if a prophet spoke in a way that was imperfect, you know what happened to him under the law? Yeah, death penalty. Now, don't think I'm saying that that's what should happen today. That's not the point. That was under the Old Testament law in Israel. But 
why would Paul stop and say, listen, if the prophets are speaking, someone needs to evaluate what they're saying. Well, who was it that said, beware of false prophets? Beware of wolves that come in sheep's clothing. Beware of false shepherds. It was our own Lord Jesus who said that. And in the church at Corinth, and Paul is an apostle, he was aware of the concern that Jesus had during his earthly ministry in that same generation. He was concerned that Jesus had warned about false prophets. And so if prophets are getting up and speaking in the worship services, someone needs to evaluate because there's a potential that it could be a false prophecy. Pick it up in verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may, look at the goal of prophecy. You see it? All may learn, it's important, and be encouraged, both mind and emotion. Encouraged in your heart and emotions, but learning is linked to your mind. And that was the goal of the prophetic word. The prophetic word was God's word presented to the new churches. And the goal of it was that they might learn and that then in learning, it might affect their emotions and they might be encouraged. So there's rational truth here. There's information. Look at verse 12. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And the word confusion there is a very strong word. It basically is the idea of anarchy or disorder. That's not the way God works. Now, number two on your checklist here is, in the worship service of the gathered church, is order maintained? Evidently, instead of orderly edification, instead of people being built up with the revealed word of God from the words of the prophets and from others who may have spoken in tongues, instead of being built up in Corinth, what you, you had other you had people all over the place grabbing the microphone. I know there were no microphones, but this is basically what you had. Hey, look at my gift. Hey. I heard what you said. How about listening to what I've got to say? And we, we recognize when we think about that for only a second how self-focused and self-driven that is. I'm going to get the spotlight here. If they had video coverage, it was like, now the camera's on me. And that kind of self-promotion is absolutely contradictory to the one another aspects of the grace gifts. It makes me wonder if the Apostle James didn't have some awareness of what was going on in some of these churches. Because listen to what he says from James chapter 2. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy, chapter 3, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be, look at it, disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. God is not the author of confusion, but the author, but is a God of what? Peace. Peaceable, gentle, praise the Lord, open to reason full of mercy and good gifts, impartial and sincere. Now, let me just show you. What was happening here was this. Because they wanted to show off their gifts, especially the, let's, can we call them the showy gifts? Because they wanted to show those off, because they wanted the opportunity to perform, 
there was a loss of intelligibility and a loss of communication. Because here's what happened when someone stood up in the ancient church with a prophecy. This will be important for next week, so grasp this. When a person stood up with a prophecy, and I believe also stood up with a tongue that was then translated, when a person did that, it's the equal to my saying every Sunday, this is the word of God for us today. Because remember, they didn't have Bibles. All they had was a knowledge of the Old Testament. And so when they came together as the body of Christ, he said, well, where was their truth? If you're going to have exposition, if you're going to talk about doctrine, where did they find that? And they found it from the ministry of the apostles and the ministry less so of the prophets and occasionally the ministry of tongues when there were other language speakers present. This is how God said, I will now give you my word. And thus it was non-negotiable. It needed to be received, but it was easily lost in chaos and confusion. And that chaos and confusion is in and of itself ungodly. Can I point out one more thing before we move on? You have implied here, in the, in the exercise of your grace gift, you have implied a broader spiritual principle that we see on every layer of theology. God does what God will do, but we are still responsible. So God gives the grace gift, and even in the early church, he reveals his word through apostles, prophets, and likely tongue speaking. But at the very same time, those that received the gift were responsible to manage it and control it. You say, well, wait a minute. If God's giving it, then there's no responsibility. You, you see the connection? People say the same thing about salvation. God is sovereign. God will do what he chooses to do. And people say, well, then I don't have any responsibility. But God says, no, you have every responsibility. You say, well, that doesn't go together. Right. When you say that doesn't go together, you're beginning to get it. And so the way you manage grace gifts, the way you perform together and serve one another in the church has a God-ordained component, but also you are responsible. So there's never a place where we say, yeah, God's going to do what he's going to do. We were studying, I guess it was in men's group this week, where Jesus told the apostles, don't worry about what you're going to say when you get arrested and thrown before kings. And I commented that some people use that passage and they say that preachers don't need to study. They just need to stand up and the Holy Spirit will give them what to say. But you see, that denies the human responsibility that is linked with God's providence and God's ordaining all things. So here's your checklist so far. Is edification prioritized? Secondly, is order maintained? And third, is authority respected? I don't know how many of you read the text before Sunday morning, but for those of you who did, this is the passage you're waiting for this morning, all right? Because look at verse 33, part B. The end of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, can I stop right there before I go into this difficult issue? All the churches of the saints. Don't go over that too quickly. The, the literal translation of the word saints has the idea of set apart ones or holy ones. And all of us are saints because we've been set apart and we are holy by virtue of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But what Paul is implying by using that word, he's saying the churches are defined by sainthood. The churches are defined by holiness. This is what holy people do when they come together. That's what he's saying. And it's not chaos. 
And it's not anarchy. It's edification and it's order. And it's also the respect of authority. And this was a particular issue regarding men and women, husbands and wives. Verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. This is the reason you know we are not a seeker-driven church, that we preach this kind of text. Because in most churches, you would just skip over this. But this is important. And again, if you've been staying with us here, back in chapter 11, it talks about women praying and women prophesying in the gathered worship. And so here Paul says, no, 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 no. Women should keep silent. So you would be right to ask, is this a contradiction? And my response is, no, it's not, because there's a specific issue that Paul is addressing in chapter 11, and then there's a specific issue he's he's addressing in 14, and they are connected, but they are somewhat different. There's a danger here. It's implied in chapter 11. It is specifically addressed here. Let me give you the danger. I'll say it this way. Behavior untethered from biblical expressions of authority. That was the danger. God has ordained authority. And there reaches a place where you can behave in such a way that instead of working in that authority and under that authority, to use the language of our sermon this morning, respecting that authority, instead you raise up and say, no, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And there was a danger of that, evidently, in the churches at Corinth. And these issues are not just limited to Corinth or the first century. There are likely two issues in view here. Let me give them to you. I'm not going to exposit them deeply, but I'm just going to try to explain them. The first issue is this. There is authority structure in the church that was designed and designated by God. By the way, it's the same authority structure that God built into the family. There's an authority structure there. And the problem was this. In these worship services where prophecy or apostles or tongues were being spoken where the word of God was being presented and it had to be verified it had to be judged for women to stand up and judge those prophecies didn't reflect the authority structure the spiritual authority that God built into the church so that was the first problem for a woman to stand up in a worship service where someone had just given a prophecy according to chapter 11 even a woman who had given a prophecy under a spiritual gift for a woman to stand up and evaluate that This woman was assuming authority, that's the language from 1 Timothy 2, was assuming authority over the church. And God has said, according to the law, back in Genesis chapter 2, in the beginning, God has said that that is not the role of women in the context of the home and in the context of the church. And so that's the first problem, the order of creation, the authority structure of the church. The second problem is the specific issue that Paul seems to move to, of wives correcting their own husbands in worship. That just layers on the problem. And that also goes back to chapter 11, because remember we dealt with that difficult context of head coverings, and what do the head coverings represent? We don't even know for sure, but one thing we do know from reading that text, that somehow or another, some women were dressing in a way, they were saying, I'm not under my husband's authority. I likely believe that it was long flowing hair that wives generally in modesty would have kept up. 
and would have kept covered in a sense. But instead, they were wearing their hair attractively and flowingly to draw attention, which wives did not do in the culture. And you see, that was the problem. They were essentially coming to worship and saying, I'm available. Well, that in and of itself was inappropriate. But they were also saying, don't think I'm under my husband's leadership. So you see, it's the same issue as chapter 11. Women can pray. When prophecy is legitimate, women can prophesy in the church at Corinth. But they had to do so under the authority that God has put in the church. And like it or not, God has made that authority male as opposed to female. And so he specifically addresses the issue of wives. And some of you who are single or if you're widows, you're saying, well, that kind of leaves me out because I don't have anybody at home to ask. We'll go read Titus 2. That's what Titus 2 is about. That the older women of the church are to care and instruct the younger, care for and instruct the younger women. Implied here is discipleship in the home. But also implied is this willing submission as opposed to willful self-assertion. And that willing submission is a sign of spiritual maturity. I won't say much more about this other than to suggest this. This is a countercultural truth. This week, I read an article about, they, they asked AI, you know, artificial intelligence, which I have not messed with yet. My intelligence is artificial enough, though I haven't, I haven't dealt into any AI. But they asked um, whatever it was called, chap, uh, snap, whatever, um, Snapchat, whatever that's called. <laughs> they asked AI to write an essay on uh, why... Uh, male leadership is appropriate. And the AI program rejected it. It said, it is not possible to write that essay. Now, believe me, I have seen male authority abused, be harsh. That's part of the fall itself, in fact. So I'm aware of that hardship and that danger. But I'm also here to tell you that a biblical view of authority, especially in the home and in the church, cannot be escaped unless you completely reinterpret and hold a revisionist view of what the Bible says. And as one podcaster just this week, I listened, he said, imagine thinking this, and this is all I'll say about it, imagine thinking this, that the investment of a woman who sits in a cubicle and writes emails, or who travels all over the country and holds meetings, that that investment of her time and energy, imagine that that is more significant than raising the next generation. And that's all the Bible is saying. The Bible isn't speaking whether you ought to have a job, ladies. The Bible is speaking about whether you ought to have a, a say and input about decisions in your home. Any common sense person recognizes that there's a partnership here. But when you go to the Bible, there's a structure of authority. And at the very place where that authority makes us uncomfortable, our culture says, we're going to reject that authority. And what you need to look for in a church is a church that not only prioritizes edification and maintains order, but also the church you look for and the church you evaluate needs to be respecting God's authority. And then finally, the last element on your checklist is this question we began with this morning. 
And it is this, is revelation acknowledged? And when I say revelation, I don't mean the book of Revelation, although that's part of it. But I'm talking about the revelation of God, the Word of God. Is the Word of God acknowledged? And this issue strikes at the heart of the Corinthian problems. And so once again, Paul's sarcasm, the longer I study him, the more I love him. Paul's sarcasm shows up in verse 36. When all of these issues about authority and this issue about whether authority will be respected and the issue about these individuals in the Corinth church that loved their showy gifts and they were going to show those gifts no matter what. And all of this, Paul, it's as though he's overwhelmed and somewhat angry, I think. So look at verse 36. He says, was it from you that the word of God came? In other words, are you the source of truth? Are you the one that determines God's word? And then he says, or are you the only ones it has reached? You're so proud of yourselves, but what you're doing is out of concord. It's, it's, it's out of practice with what all the other churches do. But you're so proud, you think, well, God has given us a special revelation. By the way, you always have to be careful about that. It's, if you assume that God has given some revelation distinctly different to Grace Community Church in Sun Valley than he has to our church, then you're off base. If, if you believe that God somehow has given the Presbyterian Church in America insight that he hasn't given anyone else, then you're not understanding what's being said here. If you believe that the ultimate source of truth is Chuck Smith in Calvary Chapel in Orange County, then you're missing what this text is saying. Every church has a responsibility to take God's word and respect its authority and to understand its revelation and acknowledge it and not in a way that we are the only ones who've received it or my favorite radio preacher is the only one who's received it. And the problem here is that there was this pride that they were manifesting. And this rebukes their pride, their insistence on manifesting their grace gifts, not for edification, but for show. So look at verse 37. He goes on. He says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, here's the evidence. He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, at the very, that's an odd phrase. He is not recognized. At the very least, it means ignore him. But at the extreme case, it means excommunicated. And that depends on what he's doing and the level of his rejection or pushback against God's revelation. This was a proud, arrogant, independent church. No respect for authority. No respect for what other churches were doing, their wisdom, their experiences. They believed that they had arrived. Instead, they were proudly charting their own path, even to the point of questioning the revelation of God. Again, we would say it this way, God's word. We would say it in our context, questioning God's word, the Bible. This was carnal and shameful, and the result was chaotic. And what is clear in this, this will be important for next week, what is clear in this is there's this unmistakable, undeniable elevation of the office and gifting of apostle. Paul, who had the gift of apostleship, he's saying, listen to me, because what I say, God says. And again, see the audacity of it? 
And yet now you say, well, Paul's not here. So how do we know what God says? We've got it right here in the Word. In this new multi-ethnic post-Old Testament law, gospel creation called the church, God's Word came through unusual grace gifts. Sometimes the prophets, sometimes through translated tongues, but typically through the apostles. And this points to the importance of the apostolic gifts. Is revelation acknowledged? Which is just another way of saying, is the Bible acknowledged as God's truth? And so the application, the summary I should say, look at the last two verses, verses 39 through 40. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So where prophecy and tongues are needed and empowered by the Spirit and practiced according to the guidelines, they were gifts to the church. But look at verse 40. All things should be done decently and in order. One final corrective. The chaos and the anarchy that was happening in the Corinth church, the fact that the grace gifts were running wild over one another, that must stop. Now, let me give you three applications for your practical life. The first one I've already referred to, but I'll circle back to it. Verse 33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Confusion versus peace. Stop and think about that. And especially, can I speak to you personally? If your life is defined by confusion because you have never, in a personal way, humbled yourself, acknowledged your sin, and put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope for your forgiveness, you, I am sorry to say, but I say with absolute confidence from God's word, you have no possibility of peace. You can't generally have peace with others. You surely will not have peace of mind and peace of heart. And you cannot hope to have any peace with God. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And until your sin is dealt with, your life will be defined by confusion. Now, for those of us who have the peace of God, it's still possible for us to live in confused ways, right? But without or apart from the gospel... There's no hope of even beginning. So I call you to faith and repentance today. The first application. The second is this. Our church stands in the train of the historic Christian position that comes from the Reformers and also the Puritans. The Puritans are our friends. Don't believe what our current culture says about Puritans. Don't use the term Puritan as a pejorative. The Puritans were wise, godly. They loved life. They loved, they loved their beer. They loved their sex within marriage. The Puritans were godly, dependable sources of commentators on the Word of God. And both the Reformers and the Puritans use this phrase that we'll talk about more next week, but it's important for me to leave you with it. The ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. And the ordinary means of grace include the ordinances of the church, baptism, and especially the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the Word of God, 
the practicing of the one another's, the using of our grace gifts to pour into others' lives and bless them. The ordinary means of grace are, by their definition, ordinary and normative. Now, let nothing I say now or next week lead you to believe that I don't believe in the God of miracles because I do. If for no other reason, it was a miracle that God saved a rebel like me. That was a miracle. But God's purpose in our lives is not, as I somewhat sarcastically said a few weeks ago, a miracle a day keeps the devil away. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is defined by and consumed under what are called the ordinary means of grace, which include reading your Bible and prayer and fellowshipping together and especially uh, not absenting yourself from worship and using your gifts to serve others. These are the ordinary means of grace. And we'll see more about that next week. And then last, the nature of the church and the church's identity should be demonstrated in a church's gatherings. What we're saying this morning is a good checklist is to say is identification, excuse me, is edification prioritized, is order maintained, is authority respected, is revelation acknowledged. And in the gatherings of the church, when a church will live that way and then worship that way, the church shows it's the church. Let me say it again. The church shows that it's the church. You say, well, what's your point? The church shows it's the church not the world. If what we do when we come together on Sunday mornings sounds and looks just like everything you've experienced from the world during the week, we're not being the church. There, there should be something so countercultural, And the fact that you sit here now for 45, almost 46 minutes and no one has gotten up and objected, that in and of itself is countercultural. Where else do you do that in life? We don't even stream television that way anymore. We stop it when we want to. Everything that we do in church should be countercultural from the world system. And when a church tries to mi mimic the world, it sacrifices its unique identity as the body of Christ. When sermons become a stand-up routine, when the goal of sermons is just to, to be a TED Talk that kind of gives you a little bit of inspirational pep for your week. When songs don't have any real substance, but just are meant to kind of move you into some kind of almost emotional trance. When that's what the church looks like, the church has said, we're going to be the world, not the church. And this is one of the reasons we do hard things. It's one of the reasons I preach on 1 Corinthians 14 where it says, let the women keep silent. Why on earth would I do that? Because we're the church. And we have no choice but to be the church. Your takeaway today. Being the church is about God's glory and others' good. Being the church is about God's glory and others' good. And you notice what's missing there. It's not about your preferences. Now, the beautiful thing is that when we are the church, your needs will be met because others are being the church and their concern is for your good. But when you come to church, even when you come to worship, 
or when you live in relationship with one another and your primary agenda is, I want my needs met, you've missed the point. Involvement in the church is where we say, I want God's glory and I want to serve others. I want others' needs met. And you will find, you want to talk about a miracle? We'll talk more about miracles next week. You want to talk about a miracle? You'll find that when you live that way, when you say what I prefer, what I wish, my opinion, my, what, what I'm really needing right now, when you set that aside and say, I am here for the glory of God and for the good of the people around me, you will find that God at the same time meets your needs. And that's the glory of the church. So that's a checklist for you. Being the church is about God's glory and others' good. Could we pray together? Father, would you speak to hearts this morning? Would you challenge us? Would you rebuke us? Would you encourage us if we're discouraged? Would you clarify if I have misspoken or if others have misheard? Would you unite us despite what may well remain to be differences? Would you unite us under the glorious gospel of Jesus? We may not all have the same view of how grace gifts work, but we all have the same view of how we are desperate sinners in need of the grace that you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. So unite us in that, Father, and help us in our stumbling ways with all of the weaknesses, with all of the baggage that we have from our past, with all of our dreams that we have for the future as this church in this place. God, do a work that only you can do. Do a work that is glorious. Do a work that is motivated by your spirit. Do a work that binds our hearts together in excitement about what you're doing. Protect us from pride. How easy it is for a church like ours to become puffed up with pride about our doctrine and the things we know. God, save us from that. Be pleased to look down at Calvary Baptist and find a place where edification is prioritized, where we do care about order, where proper authority is respected, and where, perhaps most of all, where we never compromise on your truth, your revelation, your word. Help us be the body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.